Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is a grizzled old veteran, <laughs> Ian Mahag. He is retired, he's an author, he's a commentator, uh, he provides amusement to Mrs. Mahag, apparently, so he tells me. Uh, <laughs> uh, and today we're going to be exploring a bunch of things around uh, what are the unasked questions that we should be asking? What, why do we fail to ask how? Because we've been seduced by the why. What's the pull of the status quo? And how does not, what are the consequences of not focusing on the how early enough to killing deals? What, what happens if it does or doesn't go ahead? Who is arraigned against you, for you? Who can trip you up? Who might have another agenda? Who's trying to drag you into their drama? We're going to explore where the untapped potential is within your business, within your network, within your channel, within your pipeline. And we're also going to explore how do we get access to the people who care enough to put their name to it and will make deals happen. So, Ian, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So would you mind giving the audience 60 to 90 seconds on your history, please? Born in Belfast, escaped after finishing my A-levels, which apparently was the worst year ever in Northern Ireland's history, 1972. Went to university in St Andrews, somehow persuaded them to give me a degree in physics, but uh, I'm not quite sure how that happened. (laughs) I feel the same way about my degree in Middle Eastern studies. It was four years of watching spaghetti hoops run across a page in a hungover haze. Yeah. <laughs> well, my physics teacher was as baffled as I was. But anyway, I strengthened that. <laughs> so I, I, back in 1976, the only way to get a job was to buy the Daily Telegraph on a Thursday and write actual letters, you know, that thing called a pen, piece of paper, stick a stamp on it, right? So I managed to land a job with a uh, an organisation that will be known to a lot of British people, the Rank Organisation, the man with the... Or the oily man with the loincloth and the big gong. Yeah. Um, maybe I should rephrase that. <laughs> it doesn't get better if you say with the huge stick. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I joined them as a graduate trainee, went through various jobs, moved on, and was pushed or, or had a, a banana skin strategically placed in front of me with a firm shove in my back into my first sales job. And that's why... My book, which I published two or three years ago, was called The Unintentional Salesman. I never intended to be in sales. I think that most people never did. So anyway, I fast forward, I ended up in sales. I stayed in sales as a seller or as manager of sellers or a manager of managers of sellers for um, 33 years. And um, I was rumbled a few times and moved moved on. <laughs> Sometimes of my with my with my you know help from me, but uh, and it's been an interesting ride. Uh, I've I've covered multiple sectors. I, I I can't think of one that I haven't covered. And I've sold software. I've sold hardware, uh, as in tangible stuff, not necessarily computer hardware. And I've I, I had a very interesting stint for three years in the Far East, uh, based out of Singapore, which sort of opened my eyes up to other other cultures. And then I decided to take early retirement because I had basically worn myself out and was very happy to pull the plug five years ago. But I've stayed in touch with LinkedIn. I've say I published my book. I make all kinds of uh, comments, some of them helpful, maybe some of them not so much. <laughs> I'm now doing some 
pro bono work to support a couple of uh, ex-colleagues and friends of mine who have started their own businesses. And I dip in and dip out of that. And it keeps keeps me off the streets and you know keeps well, it. It was it was through your LinkedIn content that I came across you and I, yeah. I liked the cut of your jib. Um, so the, the, well, there was a, a certain amount of grizzled, jaded, just pulling your hair out, thinking it can't have got this bad. I like that. Uh, it, it, uh, I like a bit of pessimism uh, among all this positive thinking. So tell me this. When did things start to go wrong and why? That's a very, very good question. And it's it's kind of one of those boiling the frog kind of situations, isn't it? Yeah. There comes a point when the frog suddenly realises he's being boiled. And it, you know, it's too late to get out because you're, you're, it's irreversible. I have a feeling it happened in the in the early noughties when um, we we went through this kind of slight, and certainly in the UK, we went through this kind of purple patch of just after the millennium and everyone realised the world was not actually going to stop. And before the financial crash, there was just this massive, massive surge for growth and, and, and speed and investment. Money was flying around like it was, it was going to stop. And I think at that point, because it was such pilots, fighter pilots and sales guys like to think a target-rich environment, <laughs> um, I think all the things that had been useful in the past were suddenly thought, well, we don't need to do that anymore because there's so much money out there. There's so much opportunity. We don't need to do all this stuff, be, have integrity and be honest and uh, collaborative and do the best thing for our customers. Just go and get the bloody money. And I think that's when it's when it when it it started to go downhill. And it was probably towards the end of the uh, in, in, from about two thousand three, two thousand four onwards. After I'd had about three four years working for U.S. corporations, I realised that actually that is that was the origin of it was the quarterly driven, bonus orientated executive culture, and that that was pushing so hard all the way down to the bottom of the heap and forcing people to do things in ways that simply were not conducive to long-term relationships. The, the, and, I, and I think that's when the rot set in, and then it's probably just got worse uh, and acceleratingly worse since then. The intent and motivation of the money behind you permeates the culture of your organisation as soon as they start. Yeah. And that move to quarterly reporting is really, it's a fiction in order to enable them to drive a fictional valuation. Yes, exactly. And because the chances are 97% of those businesses will never make it. So whatever the valuation is of the portfolio of the fund, most of it is a fiction. And two or three of them might survive and make it through to IPO or trade sale. The bulk will go to trade sale or die on the vine. The majority die. So that's not really a sustainable approach. And I, I get the kind of neo-fascist, Darwinist approach that you know all it does is let the fit survive, but it doesn't because it just creates a false market where people who can scale and grow and get out quickly enough before it all crashes around them make out like a bandit. And then pension funds and uh, employees who come in a bit late don't. In a nutshell, it's short-termism has is just become shorter and shorter, and the the half-life now of a sales uh, cycle is is just 
it's it's ridiculous. And and with that pressure and that that uh, comes more and more behaviours that are not conducive to actually delivering the growth and actually delivering the value. And when they see that declining, they just apply more and more pressure. It is a self-destroying approach, in my view. And I think now that perhaps the pandemic has been a massive wake-up call to a lot of companies because they've realised that their previous business practices, in the absence of this target-rich environment and this so this great slush fund of money aren't actually working. And the way that buyers are empowered now and enabled to bypass vendor salespeople has actually been a huge surprise to a lot of people. I think it's been coming for some time. And simply because salespeople have stopped being the trusted advisor. They're only there to, to close that the deal that day, that week, that month, that quarter, if you're if you know if you're really thinking long term, the end of the quarter. And customers have just got fed up with it. People are just tired of being pressured into doing things because it suits the sales guy. And that whole that whole seesaw has tilted. And I think it's tilted a lot, it's tilted a hell of a lot more quickly now. And I, I, I would venture to suggest it's actually that tilt is now permanent. And it's not going to be a question of how do you change? How do you how do you deal with it? You're going to have to change to, or become completely irrelevant. Right. Okay. So how do you become completely relevant? I think there are two words that I would, in any any way you look at this, there are two words that have to feature very strongly. One is trust, and the second one is value, because more and more customers are realizing that they're not getting value out of the investments they make. By investments, I mean the things that they buy to improve their business. Uh, there's, there's no way of measuring the, the before and after. There's no way of calculating what the real return is. It's kind of a wing and a prayer. And particular, that is particularly true of, of a lot of software products, which I sold for many years. It's very, very difficult to prove an ROI on software because you can't go back and say, well, let's now run that again, but without that new software, see how we get on and compare the two. You can't do that. It's a leap of faith. And that leap of faith is based on how much you trust the vendor and the person who's working for that vendor and the technical and, and other people around them to actually, so that the thing that you're buying does what it's, it, it may do what it says on the tin from a functional point of view, yeah? Yeah. However, is it going to is it going to do what it needs to do from a business point of view? So uh, just before we come back to, to, to finish that, I'm going to give you a little bit of mathematics. I, there's a very simple way I use to explain this to other people and to remember it myself. And it's a simple equation. And it's R, which is the result that you were looking for, right? Is a company, is a, is a, is a multiplier of I, which is the initiative, times the, the square of the adoption. So R equals I times A squared. And what's happening, or has happened, Marcus, is everybody's focusing on the I. What's this initiative? What's it going to do for us? It sounds great. Yeah, let's, we'll, we'll go do that. Very, very few people are focusing on how they are going to get it adopted inside the business. Yeah. Yeah? And, and if that A number is less than one, then the result will decay, decay over time. If it's two, then the result is going to multiply over time. And in fact, that two will probably become three or four. So that's why the how question is so important, because it's how are you going to get this 
change that you've just invested in through this piece of software or this piece of technology or this piece of advice, how are you going to get it adopted inside your organization? So everything you're saying is music to my ears because it confirms my hypothesis, which is that the answer lies in asking questions about what happened upstream. Yeah. If we don't spend time on that, and this is um, where the, I think there is another huge uh, wrong turn, which is that we've spent the last six to 10 years investing heavily in technology, largely for its shiny object syndrome, not because it actually delivered the results that we were hoping for. Um, and that's down to buyers who don't really know what they want and sellers who are accomplices in selling it to them. The buyers know what they want, but A, they don't know what they need and they don't know why they need it. I would venture to suggest that if you went and called the the chief executive of every FTSE 100 company, every single one of them has probably invested in SAP. And I'm not picking an SAP, but it's, it's one of those things that all the big FTSE 100 companies have got and ask them, what value have you got from this? I don't think any of them could give you a coherent answer. It's because it's one of those things that you've got to have, but nobody really knows why or how they're going to get value out of it other than they look at all their peers and say, well, everybody else has got it, so we and they need it, so we must need it as well. And, and, and you see the same thing happening with other big enterprise systems like CRM. I mean, come on. I mean, how many people have it, can actually measure the ROI they got from Salesforce or Siebel or whatever? What's depressing about CRM is around 80% of the content is drivel or worth yeah. And over 42%, and this is on the basis of 50,000 different CRM instances, um, so CRM, 42% of opportunities and uh, activities of engagement are not in the single source of truth. Of course not. So you don't have a lens. What you've got is a cataract that you're looking through. And because people don't ask the how, how are you going to get value out of this investment, Mr. Chief Executive? What's going to be different and better in your business one year, two years, five years down the road? And how are you going to measure it? Until you ask that question, then, or the customer can answer that question, it means that they haven't really thought through how it's going to be adopted, and the adoption drives the value. Because the value, I mean, if you think R is, the result is I times I squared, right? Value, as measured in the customer's terms of reference, value is results over time, right? So you can get lucky, you can get a, a good return on one thing, one, one small initiative. It might be at a team level, a department level, division level, a country level, globally. You might get lucky, but if you can keep doing that as a seller over time with different initiatives and different results, you are going to help your customer realize value beyond their wildest dreams. But we don't focus on that because we're on to the next initiative and we haven't asked enough questions about how did it get adopted? What what did you get out of it? And I I, I remember once I had a very well-known retailer as one of my customers. And they were about to make a significant investment with us in something that was going to transform how they did IT. Fine. And 
I said to them, uh, in the, late on, and probably too late on in the decision-making process, this, this is great, and you know this, that, and the other, and here's the implementation plan. I said, by the way, how do you actually calculate value realization? Because you've got your business plan. You've got the justification. It's been signed off by the CIO. So how are you going to measure it? And they went, oh, we don't do that. I said, really? Why not? I said, nobody's interested. So there they were, major retailer about to spend a very tasty seven-figure sum of money on something that they hoped might make things better. But they weren't going to measure it. They didn't know how. And you step back and you go, really? That's how you run your business? Okay. (laughs) That's not unusual. I mean, it's not. That's the scary thing, Marcus. I'd love to. The opposite is the opposite is the rare thing. Yeah, I'd love to pretend I was surprised, but I'm not. Um, People, but but sellers are surprised that that's the case. They are at first, and then they quite quickly. I mean, uh, if if we look at the law of unintended consequences. And we, we we look at the way people are attracted, hired, recruited, onboarded, trained, measured, their probation period, their what it's really like to be in the organization. All these things are often counter to what they were sold as the job. The job description bears little or no relation to the actual job. And they they use the same job description to hire the person that they just fired. And so they're now doubling down on stupid that didn't work. I'll give you a really good example of that. I was hired as a business development director for the Far East by a large company in the UK, who I will not name. And the day I turned up to, and it 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 was a company that was started by two brothers. And they were both pretty wealthy by the time they came on board. I came on board. I rock up on, the, on day one, and I was reporting. I mean, my boss was the chief executive, right? So I rock up on day one and go into his office, and he said, right, what I want you to do today mm. is to go and apply for a job at, and he mentioned the name of another company. It was their main competitor. And I went, sorry, what do you mean? He said, well, I want to find out what they're up to. And the best way to find that out is for somebody to go and apply for a job. And I want you to go and apply for them. I said, but I've just got this job. Why would I want to go talk to these other guys? And it was just bizarre. And three months later, there I was thinking that I was going to be helping him build this vast empire in the Far East, based on my three years' experience out there. And one day I said, well, we're having a call-out thing, and because you're covering the Far East, we need you to come in and work through the night, because that's their day. And I said something along the lines of Foxtrot Oscar. <laughs> And then it became it became very clear to me about two to three months into the job, actually, what he wanted was a telesales guy. Nah. And I thought, and he, and he had convinced the, the, the head of the biggest recruitment and most prestigious recruitment agency in the UK who had hired me against some pretty stiff opposition, because I had no experience in the sector, that this was a, this was all legitimate and above board. And all the people that this company hired all left within six months. Because they thought. Not as advertised, not even close. Again, th- this is very interesting because you do see narcissists and psychopaths succeed. And the culture of the predictable revenue model that exists in many, certainly technology companies nowadays, is really about creating this sort of meat factory 
and you know you start out as a sheep uh, and you end up as a, a kebab <laughs> or, well actually you end up somewhere else but <laughs> and there doesn't seem to be any humanity in that process because if you treat people like that and they're under this immense pressure then undoubtedly they will cut corners they will say what they have to in order to keep the roof over their head. Yeah, exactly. But again, short term. It's short term. And so it it took me a long time to realize this. And you mentioned earlier about CRM systems and lots of stuff being, you know, off the books, as it were. Again, one very large, globally recognized company that I used to work for had put in a new CRM system. But everybody and everybody still did it on spreadsheets. Because the CRM system they put in was was pants. Uh, it, it really was laughably bad. And they hadn't thought about how they were going to implement it. And But, of course, you know, the mandate came down from the guy who had put his nuts on the block to the chief executive saying, well, we're going to get all this reporting started out. We're going to get this new CRM system. And he, he basically bludgeoned people until they used it. But and it, So what people did, because it was so useless, was they put in what the system asked them to put in, but they ran the business offline on spreadsheets all the way up. It was, it was just ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Again, I think part of the challenge there is that management seen, there, there are two schools of management. One is very deeply engaged and delivers in the moment operational coaching they know everybody, they understand their people's motivation. And that may be around 5 to 6%. Yeah. The other 94, 95, 96% are accidental managers. 2.4 million accidental managers just in the UK. Yeah. They're accidental, unintentional salespeople. Uh, managers find the same thing happens. You know, Ian, we've just fired your idiot boss. You're now the idiot boss. Congratulations. Mm. And that's your runway. So what, what we're describing here is a series of parallel, concurrent, complex problems that are creating symptoms downstream that most people are throwing point solutions instead of trying to look at the bigger wicked problem. Mm. So... What advice would you give to people? How how can they be able to see that bigger picture so that they can start identifying where they need to point their scarce resources in sprints so they can start to tackle the root cause of their problems? Ah, God. Um, Well, so let's assume that to answer your question in a productive way, let's assume that we have convinced an organization of the need to do this, that they should stop thinking weekly, monthly, quarterly, possibly even annually, and that the annual, the, the annual quarterly and quarterly figures they produce are, 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 are back to their original intention, which was to give a report on how the business is doing rather than the means by which the business is driven just to drive, to drive executive bonuses and start focusing on how we are going to grow this business. And and so the first question I would be getting people to ask is, do you understand how your customers buy? 
And by how, I don't mean what's the procurement process from ITT to RFP to RFI or whatever, and, but understand how they, the customer, makes the decision to invest in something that they think is going to improve the business. And if you start to understand that, the answer to that question, you understand the need to understand how the customer buys. The simple way to, uh, to, to position yourself as to where in that spectrum of how they buy you fit, and they, you will fit in depending on the value they perceive that you bring. The qu- simple question you can ask as a seller and as a sell- manager of sellers is, does the customer understand the problem or opportunity? And very oftentimes, they don't know if the customer understands the problem. All they do, all they know is what the product is and what the product functions and features are and what marketing have told them the benefits are. They do not understand how the customer gets value from them. So I think it really has, and I said this at the start, you know, trust and value will appear very frequently in this conversation. And this is all about starting from the, the, the position of what is the value to the customer of what we do and at what point in the customer's buying journey from I've got an idea or I've seen a problem to I've now executed on a solution to that idea or problem and I'm working with these guys, at what point in that decision-making process do we fit? Where do we start? Do we start with the buying guy um, who suddenly realizes he's run out of toner or needs you know 50 laptops tomorrow? Or do we start with the chief executive and say, we've had, we've had a look at your business and we think that if you did this, this, and this, you could fix these issues which are going to bite you in 12 months' time, even though you don't see them today, or it could give you this great opportunity to leapfrog over your competitors. That's a business conversation. It's not a sales conversation. And you have to understand as a seller where you fit in that spectrum. Because if you get that wrong and you're you're knocking on the chief executive's door saying, hey, we've got a great deal on laptops this month, you're going to be thrown off the top of the building. And equally, if you go to the guy in procurement and say, we'd like to talk to you about this three-year plan to enhance your market value by doing they go, what? No, we can't buy that. Piss off. So you've got to get that right. And that's, well, that's the, the key thing. It's value-based. The, the, the only thing I would challenge in that, because I agree with all of it, is that that is the function of a salesperson. That is selling. It's not taking the order. The order is a byproduct of doing that stuff well. And you say it's a business conversation, but I absolutely believe that sales has to have conversations with the business with a view to establishing, can I help? If I can, am I best place to help? Or would you be better served by working with somebody else? Now, the challenge is in order to be able to do that, and you alluded to it earlier, is someone has to be willing to give up quarterly reporting. Someone has to be patient capital, or ah. they have to be a patient uh, patient founder. No, you don't give up quarterly reporting. You give up the business being driven by, we've got we've committed to this target for this quarter, therefore we have to achieve it by any means that, that we right. can, whatever it takes. When you get to the end of quarter, what, you know, I worked for one company, it started every sales company, and start of every quarter, the VP, double VP of sales, would start start, kick, start to kick off by saying, this quarter is the most important quarter in our in our history, ever. And we said, but you said that last quarter. He said, yeah, that was then. This is now. And next quarter, that will be the most important. And that's, that was the mindset. Here it is, here, bump. And if you, if you then see 
the the uh, the quarterly report as a report, not the you know the, the hammer that hits you every month. Then things start to change. And the second point I would make, Marcus, is yes, it is a it is a sales approach, but actually, because the seller is just the tip of the spear. Mm-hmm. You are the little pointy bit with maybe a little bit of you know attractant or poison on the end of the spear. Behind you is the shaft of the spear, and without that shaft, you are just a you're, you're an arrowhead and you'll fall down. The whole organization has to get behind it from the top downwards. The whole organization has to align to the customer. This is again music to my ears because this then speaks to a total rethinking in terms of how you build your pipeline. Because to my mind, it just makes no sense to go through a list of 10,000 people when you can use technology to suck the needles out of the haystack and identify the 127 who are in your ideal space and are likely to engage. And then engage with those companies by surrounding the account and investing time in research, in planning, in rehearsal, instead of dead activity. Because, you know... Did, uh, I was in, interviewing Chris Beal at Connect and Sell a couple of months back. And he said the average SDR actually spends three minutes a day in conversation with a prospect. As much as that? Out of 480. That is shocking. You've got banks of these people on this mind-numbing, deadening, uh, soul-destroying activity that essentially just pisses people off or burns people up. This is the sales equivalent. Of the first war general, first world war general. Yeah. Get over the barbed wire, guys. Yeah, with his machine gun, it's gonna shoot you down, but it doesn't matter. We'll just throw more and more people at it, and eventually somebody's gonna get through. It's absolute madness. And and it starts from and, and until and unless you start from understanding what how the customers re- recognizes the value that you bring, then you're going nowhere. Because if you cannot understand what that value is then why, why, how are you going to have a meaningful conversation with the customer? Well, the answer is you're not. All you're going to talk about is the product, the speeds and feeds, the bells and whistles, the bits and bytes. And then you're just, you're just a talking head. You're not, you're not selling anything. You're talking about things. And it is a fundamental sea change, Marcus. And I, I sense that it is starting to the light. There's a little flickering you know, photon of light out there somewhere that's permeating certain darknesses, and it has to speed up because pretty soon all those people who don't see that little flickering light are going to become irrelevant. Well, if you are an investor, you should be furious when you consider the latent value that is being missed because not only are they behaving like World War I generals, but they're also behaving like payday lenders because at the end of the quarter, we've got to pillage our future pipeline and try and bring deals forward. What can you bring forward? Yeah, what can you close down? When you look at the tariff of that, it's three and a half to five and a half thousand dials to get one opportunity to a second meeting on the basis of Chris Beale's 80 million cold calls a year from his company. Now, if you're doing that for every deal and you bring forward, I don't know, 36 you multiply that by three and a half to five and a half thousand. That is a shed load of work. Yeah. So now you're creating this vacuum, which you have to fill. Sorry, go ahead. And it is an exponentially growing problem. You know, if you're constantly bringing things forward and you're having to work 10 times as hard, it's an exponentially growing problem. So just, just on that point, actually, I'm going to throw a big brick in a small pond here. 
And I've had this discussion with several people on LinkedIn who talk about pipeline coverage, right? Five times, 10 times pipeline coverage. And I say to them, that's your biggest problem, demanding five to 10. Say, so let, let's, let's pick five. So if you've got five times pipeline coverage, right? That means that you have knowingly put 80% of the, of, of the opportunities that you've identified are, are absolute rubbish because you know they're not going to close. Because otherwise, why, why put them in there? I've always proposed that instead of having 5x coverage, you should have one and a bit. Because with a 10% or 20% contingency, it absolutely forces you to do two things. First of all, focus on the quality of the deal. And two, get rid of all the crap. Because otherwise, you're spending 80% of your resources to putting stuff in there just to make the pipeline look good. If you've got high quality opportunities in that you have a, a very good chance of closing, then a lot of good things start to happen. First of all, you have much more resources to focus on, on, on bringing things over the line the right way to focus on value. And second of all, you take a huge amount of variation and risk out of your pipeline. And that's another word that I, I, we should probably put in, into the conversation at some stage. All of this stuff with all of these high fact, factors of pipeline coverage, all this dialytes and all the rest of it. All it's doing is multiplying the, the, the risk in your pipeline because you don't know what is actually going to close until it closes. It's unpredictable. And therefore, you could be way, way out because if you're planning your business on what your sales force forecast says is coming in for you as revenue and you make an investment choice and that revenue doesn't appear, you could be greatly exposed. Or... If the, the forecast is low and then suddenly a massive amount of revenue appears and you've got to service it, then you may have to deflect resources away from other things and you haven't got the people to do it. So the, the downstream impacts on variability in the sales forecast for a business, particularly a small one, are just horrendous. So why don't people then focus instead on getting predictability into the forecast through elimination of risk? by focusing on quality, not just saying, well, we've got, we, we have to do 20 deals this quarter. We've got 100 in the, 100 in the pipeline. We don't care which 20 it is. Well, and I mean, there's technology out there that can actually help you to take away all of that work. I don't know if you've ever come across Ebster.com, no. um, but it plugs into your CRM. It plugs into all of your comm systems. And then it looks at the level of engagement over the last three years within those accounts. And it doesn't just take the salesperson's word for it or the, um, the stuff that's in the CRM. It looks at all the levels of engagement. Now, what's interesting about that is it then gives you pinpoint accuracy. And um, you could, I mean, you can download it for free, for God's sake. It takes about two hours to integrate automatically with all of your systems. And then it gives you a score for every single opportunity uh, in terms of the level of engagement. Has it gone up? Has it gone down? and which of your opportunities are at risk. So you can take all of that administration away from the manual processing so they can then focus their time on building quality pipeline, yeah. on getting the coverage. That's actually a really, really good idea. But I think there's also something else you can do ahead of that step that would make that even more effective. And it's... Uh, this isn't a plug as such, but I have to I have to mention something that Go ahead. is a product. There's a couple of 
guys I used to work with have come up with a, a the, the, to the best of my knowledge, that so far the only sales process that is based on agile principles. The principles borrowed from agile software development and okay. things like Lean and Kanban. And the big difference they made was that every time you record progress in your CRM in, in your CRM system, this is a process, not a CRM system. Every time you record the, the progress, it has to be verifiable customer outcome, not what the sales guy thought happened in the meeting. If you say it's now moved from stage two to stage three. The, the definitions in the process say, well, to do that, you have to have done the following things. And they, de they deconstruct the opportunity into seven different parameters of, of types of engagement, commercial, technical, proposition, et cetera, et cetera. So you cannot move an opportunity forward unless you have got verifiable evidence of the customer outcome that you need to achieve to, to, to move it forward. So if you if you instill that discipline in your sales team right at the start, then you're you're then put, yeah. then using technology to enhance that rather than exactly. yeah, yeah. What's that company called? It's called the Essential Sales Process, ESP. And it's such a it's one of those things that I mean in my my in my career I've seen, and I say this often, there are two things that I've seen in 33 years of selling that are actually game changers. That's the first one. And that's come out fairly recently. The second one is what I talked about earlier, this idea of the, the, the customer engaging with you based on, on where they uh, recognize value. That When I first came across this in 2004, I, I just sat there, my chin hit the, 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 the table, and I thought, holy shit, why have I, this is so good, why have I not realized this before? And once you see it explained to you, it is so obvious, you think, well, why doesn't everybody do this? But they don't. So those are two two things that I think are absolutely transformational. You, you, you threatened three, so I'm going to. Say three? Oh, yeah. sorry, I only meant two. <laughs> there are three types of people who do maths, and them that can, and them that can't. Yeah, others. <laughs> um, so let, let's go back to that customer engages with you where they recognise value. Yeah, how can you find out? that information about where they recognize value, apart from the obvious question, which is ask. So the good news is that if you look at most businesses, they make buying decisions in a predictable, logical, and rational way. And that is because they tend not to buy things just because they want them or because they're new and sparkly. They buy them because they need them and they think they're going to get value from them. So whether they realize it or not, they, they do go through this process. And it's a consistent process that they all go through. In some organizations, it's very formalized, it's very structured. Others, it's less so. And sometimes they say they're doing it without necessarily realizing they're doing it. And once you understand what that process is, then you can, and it's a six-stage process with an acronym, uh, it's IMPACT, and I won't go into what the acronym is, but I can post about it afterwards. I've actually written about it several times. If you want, Feel free to if you want to. No, it's okay. It's, it's okay. The start, of the, the start of it is somebody has an idea. That's the I, right? You then go through several internal processes until you get to the point where an order is placed, which is T, the transaction. You know, depending on where in between those two points, depending on and the further, the closer to the idea you are, the, long, the higher the value the customer perceives. Because 
if you're talking about an idea or a problem they haven't really got to grips with, the impact you can have and the value you can help them realize is humongous. By the time you get down to transaction and all they want from you is, we need a dozen widgets, how much are they, when can I have them? They've already worked out what the problem is. They know what it is. They've solved it many, many times. So effectively, impact is the hierarchy of value. Yes. Yes. Right. Okay. So the, 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 three, the three categories of value that relate to that are value offered. So that's the transactional stuff, you know, the, the laptops, the office furniture, the photocopy toner, photo, photocopier toner, where the customer knows what the problem is. He knows, he knows there's plenty of solutions out there. All he wants is the best deal and he needs it tomorrow. You offer that. It might be a distribution business. It might be that kind of that, that kind of thing. So it's a commoditized market. Then you've got value added, where the customer kind of understands what the problem is, realizes there's a spectrum of solutions out there. There's a, a range of vendors who might be able to provide it, but he's not sure which is the best one for him, and he's not sure he really understands the problem. So he needs someone to come and help him, and that is typically the vendor or the vendor salesperson who come and ask him lots of questions like how are you going to use this and what's important to that and that all the qualifying stuff that we're all familiar with in sales methods like spin you then add value by showing him a few things he hadn't thought of and you know um, giving him a little bit more than he thought he was going to get when he just bought the product that's where you add value and then and that's kind of where 80 percent of of business to business selling happens and that's what i did for many many years but there's the third category, which to me is the most interesting, the most challenging, and therefore the, the, the one that attracts me the most, which is value created, where the customer doesn't know what the problem is. He doesn't see what the opportunity is. You have to go and help him. But you haven't got a product to sell because he doesn't know he's got a problem. You can't sell him a product to fix a problem he doesn't know he has. So you have to help them understand the value that can come by fixing A, B, and C problem or exploiting, or exploiting X, Y, Z opportunity. And that is a business conversation you have with a, a CIO, a CEO, a CFO maybe. And it's not the same sort of conversation you have as a direct seller because you're not selling anything yet. At, at that level, the C-suite are talent spotters the CFO in particular, they should be keeping an eye out for great ideas, great innovations yes. that will give them slight edge. Because yeah. in this day and age, it's rare that you're going to find something that will give you a competitive edge that will sustain. So what you're looking for is slight edge. And I think an, another really important point to bear in mind is that many businesses morph and evolve. They're not designed. And what I find really interesting is how businesses that can have the discipline to design themselves to be ready for the future come unstuck so much less because they've given thought to that. They are prepared for the future. So, um, you know, a fast uh, scaling business that doesn't build their operations before they build their sales pipeline is going to be in for a hell of a shock. Because the wheels and wings will start coming off and customers will start complaining. Definitely. And then you get backlogs and then you have to do rework and then you lose money on every deal and then customers churn and then your reputation shot to pieces. So if you don't plan, you're setting yourself up to fail. Sorry, go ahead. I'm reminded again of the, the VP I quoted earlier said this is the most important quarter in our, our history. The CEO and co-founder of that company, who's one of the most 
visionary guys I've ever met, and I did take him out to see customers several times. He would say regularly, the only limit to our growth is our ability to execute. If we can't execute, we're screwed. So there's a massive, massive focus on execution of making the, and because above that sat the mission. I know everyone's got a mission statement, but most of the crap. The mission there was very, very simple, very succinct, customer success. And if you're not, everything we do has to deliver and help our customers become successful. If we're not helping our customers become successful, we are a cost and a drag on the business. Not We're not adding value to the business. Well, this again is really interesting because if every job in the business does not have a window to the customer, then it's very easy for the customer to be forgotten, especially when they touch that part of the business. And I think that customer success really needs to have a much stronger position and ideally on the board, because if everything is not built around the customer, with the customer at the heart and buyer safety being central, then chances are you're going to spend an awful lot of time replacing customers who leave you or repairing relationships with customers who could be growing instead of uh, shrinking. Yeah. There's two important points to follow on from that. One is a lot of companies, A, have a customer success officer or a customer success function, but that's usually there to make sure that the stuff that they sold them that's been sitting on the shelf for six months actually gets implemented. It doesn't start at the very beginning and think, how do we make this customer successful? It's how do we how do we stop this becoming a complete clusterfuck, basically. <laughs> and the second thing is that so many companies uh, and I could I could name dozens of names who, who fall into this trap. Confuse customer satisfaction with customer success. Customer satisfaction is transitory, right? Marcus, you've just bought your new Lexus. Do you like it? How, How old do you think I am? <laughs> okay, so you've just bought your new Renault Zoe then. <laughs> Whatever. You've just bought your new car. The sales guy calls you. Do you like do you like your car, Mr. Mr. Jones? Oh yeah, I love it. It's fantastic. I'm really happy with it. Great. Thanks very much. Yeah. However, customer success is a complete so, and then they go away and they uh, three years later he gets the pain comes up and said, Oh, the lease on that car is running up, coming up. I must give the guy a call and see if he wants to buy another one. That's not investing in customer success. That's that's reacting to satisfaction stroke dissatisfaction, which is after the event. And by the time the customer is dissatisfied, you're screwed. You would love Bob Mester's book, Demand Side Sales, and his buyer's journey model. It's, it's so very close to where you're at, but um, re- really very interesting because I think, sadly, we've got to wrap up. But yeah, 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 I, can see the I think what's really on. interesting is the lack of alignment and the disconnect and the the, uh, the friction that vendors create by trying to be efficient instead of being effective and by trying to achieve valuation rather than customer success. And so this has been incredibly insightful. Thank you. Efficiency only impacts the transactional side and a little bit of customer experience. Effectiveness starts at the very top. And I would... I would I would measure that by how often does the chief executive of the selling company go and talk to the chief executive of the customer and demonstrate 
the fact that his organization is completely focused, aligned, and committed to that customer success. How, many, how often does that happen? I would guarantee you it's pretty, pretty much zero. Ian, this has been really very, very helpful, and I, I've taken a lot away from this. If you go were to go back in time and whisper in the ear of the idiot Ian, age 23, what, what one choice bit of advice would he have ignored but should have paid heed to? Well, bear in mind that in, at 23, I was running a small quality assurance department in a loudspeaker manufacturer in Bradford. What I'm about to say to you probably wouldn't apply to that particular individual. But knowing what I know now, that I was going to find myself on this banana skin falling into sales in about, about four years after that, the one thing I, well, it's actually two sides of the same coin. The first thing I would say is don't be so trusting of the people above you and, yeah. be, more, and, be, more, and be more selfish about the investments that you make in other people and protecting yourself. Very interesting. Okay. How can people get a hold of you? Um, Do you want them to? <laughs> well, usually people get a hold of me around the neck. You know? <laughs> well, well, the neck's getting a bit big these days, so they have to get. So I'm very happy for people to contact me. So email address is, and everyone asks me why I've got this email address. So anyway, it's Lord of Glencoe eight three six six two at gmail.com. It is on my LinkedIn profile. Or you can contact me uh, on WhatsApp, which is the only way I can seem to get a mobile phone to work in my house. The number is 07397-198-797. I'm very happy to help and support people, but I am now starting to offer my services in return for a modest fee for anyone who wants individual help or individual coaching and can stand the sound of my voice for more than an hour. <laughs> It's great. You know, as an author, Marcus, one thing you always want is to get feedback from your readers. You know, Remind us of your book. Well, there's three, actually. There's The Unintentional Salesman, which is the one relevant to our discussion. There's also, which is written under the name of Glenn Coe, by the way, not my name. Then there's, there's the two children's books that I wrote at the same time. Getting that feedback means that the circle is complete. When, they, when, they, when the reader has read the story or read the book and absorbed what's in it and starts to use it, or get something out of it, that's when your story, that's when the circle is complete. And it's the same with putting stuff up on LinkedIn. It goes up there and it goes out into the ether and I have no idea what happens to it. Being able to work with somebody one-to-one, which I do, actually, I do have some people I do that for, and seeing the transformation in them when they have internalized some of the things we've talked about and applied it directly to their day job and they can see the results coming, that is a great, great reward. It is. I get that. Excellent. Ian Mahag, thank you. Thanks, Marcus. And um, I must you must tell me how to get that started or more background. I like that. <laughs> I, I will send it and send you a copy. Fantastic. Okay, take care. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful and useful, then please like, comment, share, subscribe, and tag someone who'd find it useful, preferably a manager or a founder who could do the quick kick up the arse. Anyway, in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. And if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. Bye-bye.